Chapters 41 and 42 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 41. Long before Ernest reached the dining-room, his ill-divining soul had told him that his sin had found him out. What head of family ever sends for any of its members into the dining-room, if his intentions are honourable? When he reached it, he found it empty, his father having been called away for a few minutes unexpectedly upon some parish business, and he was left in the same kind of suspense as people are in after they have been ushered into their dentist's ante-room. Of all the rooms in the house, he hated the dining-room worst. It was here that he had had to do his Latin and Greek lessons with his father. It had a smell of some particular kind of polish or varnish, which was used in polishing the furniture, and neither I nor Ernest can even now come within range of the smell of this kind of varnish without our hearts failing us. Over the chimney-piece there was a veritable old master, one of the few original pictures which Mr. George Pontifex had brought from Italy. It was supposed to be a Salvatore Rosa, and had been bought as a great bargain. The subject was Elijah or Elisha, whichever it was, being fed by the ravens in the desert. There were the ravens in the upper right-hand corner with bread and meat in their beaks and claws, and there was the prophet in question in the lower left-hand corner, looking longingly up towards them. When Ernest was a very small boy, it had been a constant matter of regret to him that the food which the ravens carried never actually reached the prophet. He did not understand the limitation of the painter's art, and wanted the meat and the prophet to be brought into direct contact. One day, with the help of some steps which had been left in the room, he had clambered up to the picture, and with a piece of bread and butter traced a greasy line right across it from the raven's to Alicia's mouth, after which he had felt more comfortable. Ernest's mind was drifting back to this youthful escapade when he heard his father's hand on the door, and in another second Theobald entered. "'Oh, Ernest,' he said, in an offhand, rather cheery manner, there's a little matter which I should like you to explain to me, as I have no doubt you very easily can. Thump, 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 went Ernest's heart against his ribs, but his father's manner was so much nicer than usual that he began to think it might be, after all, only another false alarm. It had occurred to your mother and myself that we should like to set you up with a watch again before you went back to school. "'Oh, that's all,' said Ernest to himself, quite relieved. "'And I have been to-day to look out for a second-hand one, which should answer every purpose so long as you're at school.' Theobald spoke as if watches had half a dozen purposes besides timekeeping, but he could hardly open his mouth without using one or the other of his tags, and answering every purpose was one of them. Ernest was breaking out into the usual expression of gratitude, when Theobald continued, "'You are interrupting me!' And Ernest's heart thumped again. 
"'You are interrupting me, Ernest. I have not yet done.' Ernest was instantly dumb. I passed several shops with second-hand watches for sale, but I saw none of a description and price which pleased me, till at last I was shown one which had, so the shopman said, been left with him recently for sale, and which at once I recognized as the one which had been given you by your Aunt Alethea. Even if I had failed to recognize it, as perhaps I might have done, I should have identified it directly it reached my hands, inasmuch as it had E.P., a present from A.P., engraved upon the inside. I need say no more to show you that this was the very watch which you told your mother and me that had dropped out of your pocket. Up to this time Theobald's manner had been studiously calm, and his words had been uttered slowly but here he suddenly quickened and flung off the mask as he added the words, "'Or some such cock-and-bull story, which your mother and I were too truthful to disbelieve. You can guess what must be our feelings now.' Ernest felt that this last home thrust was just. In his less anxious moments he had thought his papa and mamma green for the readiness with which they believed him but he could not deny that their credulity was a proof of their habitual truthfulness of mind. In common justice he must own that it was very dreadful for two such truthful people to have a son as untruthful as he knew himself to be. Believing that a son of your mother and myself would be incapable of falsehood, I had at once assumed that some tramp had picked up the watch and was now trying to dispose of it. This, to the best of my belief, was not accurate. Theobald's first assumption had been that it was Ernest who was trying to sell the watch, and it was an inspiration of the moment to say that his magnanimous mind had at once conceived the idea of a tramp. You may imagine how shocked I was when I discovered that the watch had been brought for sale by that miserable woman, Ellen. Here Ernest's heart hardened a little and he felt as near an approach to an instinct to turn as one so defenseless could be expected to feel. His father quickly perceived this and continued, "'Who was turned out of this house in circumstances which I will not pollute your ears by more particularly describing?' I put aside the horrid conviction which was beginning to dawn upon me, and assumed that in the interval between her dismissal and her leaving this house— she had added theft to her other sin, and having found your watch in your bedroom, had purloined it. It even occurred to me that you might have missed your watch after the woman was gone, and suspecting who had taken it had run after the carriage in order to recover it. But when I told the shopman of my suspicions, he assured me that the person who left it with him had declared most solemnly that it had been given her by her master's son whose property it was, and who had a perfect right to dispose of it. He told me further that, thinking the circumstances in which the watch was offered for sale somewhat suspicious, he had insisted upon the woman's telling him the whole story of how she came by it, before he would consent to buy it of her. He said that at first, as women of that stamp invariably do, she tried prevarication, but on being threatened that she should at once be given into custody if she did not tell the whole truth, 
she described the way in which you had run after the carriage till as she said you were black in the face and insisted on giving her all your pocket money your knife and your watch she added that my coachman john whom i shall instantly discharge was witness to the whole transaction now ernest be pleased to tell me whether this appalling story is true or false it never occurred to ernest to ask his father why he did not hit a man his own size or to stop him midway in the story with a remonstrance against being kicked when he was down the boy was too much shocked and shaken to be inventive he could only drift and stammer out that the tale was true so i feared said theobald and now ernest be good enough to ring the bell when the bell had been answered theobald desired that john should be sent for and when john came theobald calculated the wages due to him and desired him at once to leave the house john's manner was quiet and respectful he took his dismissal as a matter of course for Theobald had hinted enough to make him understand why he was being discharged. But when he saw Ernest sitting pale and awestruck on the edge of his chair against the dining-room wall, a sudden thought seemed to strike him, and turning to Theobald he said in a broad northern accent, which I will not attempt to reproduce, "'Look here, master, I can guess what all this is about.' now before i goes i want to have a word with you ernest said theobald leave the room no master ernest you shan't said john planting himself against the door now master he continued you may do as you please about me i've been a good servant to you and i don't mean to say as you've been a bad master to me but i do say that if you bear hardly on master ernest here i have those in the village as'll hear on it and let me know and if i do hear on it i'll come back and break every bone in your skin so there john's breath came and went quickly as though he would have been well enough pleased to begin the bone-breaking business at once theobald turned an ashen colour not, as he explained afterwards, at the idle threats of a detected and angry ruffian, but at such atrocious insolence from one of his own servants. "'I shall leave, Master Ernest, John,' he rejoined proudly, "'to the reproaches of his own conscience.' "'Thank God, and thank John,' thought Ernest. "'As for yourself,' I admit that you have been an excellent servant until this unfortunate business came on, and I shall have much pleasure in giving you a character if you want one. Have you anything more to say? No more nor what I have said, said John sullenly. But what I've said I means and I'll stick to, character or no character. Oh, you need not be afraid about your character, John, said Theobald kindly and as it is getting late there can be no occasion for you to leave the house before to-morrow morning to this there was no reply from john who retired packed up his things and left the house at once 
When Christina heard what had happened, she said she could condone all except that Theobald should have been subjected to such insolence from one of his own servants through the misconduct of his son. Theobald was the bravest man in the whole world, and could easily have collared the wretch and turned him out of the room. But how far more dignified, how far nobler, had been his reply how it would tell in a novel or upon the stage, for though the stage was as a whole immoral, yet there were doubtless some plays which were improving spectacles. She could fancy the whole house hushed with excitement at hearing John's menace, and hardly breathing by reason of their interest and expectation of the coming answer. Then the actor, probably the great and good Mr. MacReady, would say, I shall leave Master Ernest, John, to the reproaches of his own conscience. Oh, it was sublime! What a roar of applause must follow! Then she should enter herself and fling her arms about her husband's neck and call him her lion-hearted husband. When the curtain dropped, it would be buzzed about the house that the scene just witnessed had been drawn from real life and it actually occurred in the household of the Reverend Theobald Pontifex, who had married a Miss Allaby, etc., etc. As regards Ernest, the suspicions which had already crossed her mind were deepened, but she thought it better to leave the matter where it was. At present she was in a very strong position. Ernest's official purity was firmly established, but at the same time he had shown himself so susceptible that she was able to fuse two contradictory impressions concerning him into a single idea, and consider him as a kind of Joseph and Don Juan in one. This was what she had wanted all along, but her vanity, being gratified by the possession of such a son, there was an end to it. The son himself was not. No doubt if John had not interfered, Ernest would have had to expiate his offence with ache, penury, and imprisonment. As it was, the boy was to consider himself as undergoing these punishments, and as suffering pangs of unavailing remorse inflicted on him by his conscience into the bargain. But beyond the fact that Theobald kept him more closely to his holiday task, and the continued coldness of his parents, no ostensible punishment was meted out against him. Ernest, however, tells me that he looks back upon this as the time when he began to know that he had a cordial and active dislike for both his parents, which I suppose means that he was now beginning to be aware that he was reaching man's estate. CHAPTER 42 About a week before he went back to school, his father again sent for him into the dining-room, and told him that he should restore him his watch, but that he should deduct the sum he had paid for it, for he had thought it better to pay a few shillings rather than dispute the ownership of the watch, seeing that Ernest had undoubtedly given it to Ellen, from his pocket-money in payments which should extend over two half-years. He would therefore have to go back to Roughborough this half-year with only five shillings in his pocket. If he wanted more, he must earn more merit money. Ernest was not so careful about money as a pattern boy should be. 
he did not say to himself, Now I have got a sovereign which must last me fifteen weeks, therefore I may spend exactly one shilling and four pence in each week, and spend exactly one and four pence in each week accordingly. He ran through his money at about the same rate as other boys did, being pretty well cleaned out a few days after he had got back to school. When he had no more money, he got a little into debt, and when as far in debt as he could see his way to repaying, he went without luxuries. Immediately he got any money, he would pay his debts. If there was any over, he would spend it. If there was not, and there seldom was, he would begin to go on tick again. His finance was always based upon the supposition that he could go back to school with one pound in his pocket, of which he owed, say, a matter of fifteen shillings. There would be five shillings for sundry school subscriptions, but when these were paid, the weekly allowance of sixpence given to each boy in hall, his merit money, which this half he was resolved should come to a good sum, and renewed credit, would carry him through the half. The sudden failure of fifteen shillings was disastrous to my hero's scheme of finance. His face betrayed his emotions so clearly that Theobald said he was determined to learn the truth at once, and this time, without days and days of falsehood, before he reached it. The melancholy fact was not long in coming out, namely, that the wretched Ernest added debt to the vices of idleness, falsehood, and possibly, for it was not impossible, immorality. How had he come to get into debt? Did the other boys do so? Ernest reluctantly admitted that they did. With what shops did they get into debt? This was asking too much. Ernest said he didn't know. Oh, Ernest, Ernest, exclaimed his mother, who was in the room. Do not so soon a second time presume upon the forbearance of the tenderest-hearted father in the world. Give time for one stab to heal before you wound him with another. This was all very fine, but what was Ernest to do? How could he get the school shopkeepers into trouble by owning that they let some of the boys go on tick with them? There was Mrs. Cross, a good old soul, who used to sell hot rolls and butter for breakfast, or eggs and toast, or it might be the quarter of a fowl with bread sauce and mashed potatoes, for which she would charge sixpenny. If she made a farthing out of the sixpence, it was as much as she did. When the boys would come trooping into her shop after the hounds, how often had not Ernest heard her say to her servant girls, now then, you wanches, get some cheers. All the boys were fond of her, and was he, Ernest, to tell tales about her? It was horrible. Now look here, Ernest, said his father with the blackest scowl. I am going to put a stop to this nonsense once and for all. Either take me fully into your confidence, as a son should take a father, and trust me to deal with this matter as a clergyman and a man of the world, or understand distinctly that I shall take the whole story to Dr. Skinner, who I imagine will take much sterner measures than I should. Oh, Ernest, Ernest, sobbed Christina, 
be wise in time and trust those who have already shown you that they know but too well how to be forbearing. No genuine hero of romance should have hesitated for a moment. Nothing should have cajoled or frightened him into telling tales out of school. Ernest thought of his ideal boys. They, he well knew, would have let their tongues be cut out of them before information could have been wrung from any word of theirs. But Ernest was not an ideal boy, and he was not strong enough for his surroundings. I doubt how far any boy could withstand the moral pressure which was brought to bear upon him. At any rate, he could not do so, and after a little more writhing he yielded himself as passive prey to the enemy. He consoled himself with the reflection that his papa had not played the confidence trick on him quite as often as his mamma had, and that probably it was better he should tell his father, than that his father should insist on Dr. Skinner making an inquiry. His papa's conscience jabbered a good deal, but not as much as his mamma's. The little fool forgot that he had not given his father as many chances of betraying him as he had given to Christina. Then it all came out. He owed this at Mrs. Cross's, and this to Mrs. Jones, and this at the Swan and Bottle public house, to say nothing of another shilling or sixpence or two in other quarters. Nevertheless, Theobald and Christina were not satiated, but rather the more they discovered, the greater grew their appetite for discovery. It was their obvious duty to find out everything. For though they might rescue their own darling from this hotbed of iniquity without getting to know more than they knew at present, were there not other papas and mammas with darlings whom they were also bound to rescue, if it were yet possible? What boys, then, owed money to these harpies, as well as Ernest? Here again was a feeble show of resistance but the thumbscrews were instantly applied, and Ernest, demoralized as he already was, recanted and submitted himself to the powers that were. He told only a little less than he knew or thought he knew. He was examined, re-examined, cross-examined, sent to the retirement of his own bedroom and cross-examined again. The smoking in Mrs. Jones's kitchen all came out, which boys smoked and which did not, which boys owed money and roughly how much and where, which boys swore and used bad language. Theobald was resolved that this time Ernest should, as he called it, take him into his confidence without reserve. So the school list which went with Dr. Skinner's half-yearly bills was brought out, and the most secret character of each boy was gone through seriatim by Mr. and Mrs. Pontifex, so far as it was in Ernest's power to give information concerning it. And yet Theobald had on the preceding Sunday preached a less feeble sermon than he commonly preached upon the horrors of the Inquisition. No matter how awful was the depravity revealed to them, the pair never flinched, but probed and probed, till they were on the point of reaching subjects more delicate than they had yet touched upon. Here Ernest's unconscious self took the matter up, and made a resistance to which his conscious self was unequal, by tumbling him off his chair in a fit of fainting. Dr. Martin was sent for and pronounced the boy to be seriously unwell. 
At the same time he prescribed absolute rest and absence from nervous excitement. So the anxious parents were unwillingly compelled to be content with what they had got already, being frightened into leading him a quiet life for the short remainder of the holidays. They were not idle, but Satan can find as much mischief for busy hands as for idle ones. So he sent a little job in the direction of Battersby, which Theobald and Christina undertook immediately. It would be a pity, they reasoned, that Ernest should leave Roughborough, now that he had been there three years. It would be difficult to find another school for him, and to explain why he left Roughborough. Besides, Dr. Skinner and Theobald were supposed to be old friends, and it would be unpleasant to offend him. These were all valid reasons for not removing the boy. The proper thing to do, then, would be to warn Dr. Skinner confidentially of the state of his school, and to furnish him with a school list annotated with the remarks extracted from Ernest, which should be appended to the name of each boy. Theobald was the perfection of neatness. While his son was ill upstairs, he copied out the school list so that he could throw his comments into a tabular form, which assumed the following shape. Only that, of course, I have changed the names. One cross in each square was to indicate occasional offense. Two stood for frequent, and three for habitual delinquency. Smith, smoking, no cross. Drinking beer at the Swan and Bottle, no cross. Swearing in obscene language, two crosses. Notes, will smoke next half. Brown, smoking, three crosses. Drinking beer at the Swan and Bottle, no cross. Swearing in obscene language, one cross. Jones, smoking, one cross. Drinking beer at the Swan and Bottle, two crosses. Swearing in obscene language, three crosses. Robinson, smoking, two crosses. Drinking beer at the Swan and Bottle, two crosses. Swearing in obscene language, one cross. And thus through the whole school. Of course, in justice to Ernest, Dr. Skinner would be bound over to secrecy before a word was said to him. But, Ernest being thus protected, he could not be furnished with the facts too completely. End of chapter 42 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman